Hi y'all, you're listening to In the Corner Back by the Woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. In the history of early recorded music, one label stands out as a kind of unlikely blessing. A studio in the unassuming town of Richmond, Indiana, would end up making some of the first recordings of now legendary artists in the blues, hillbilly, and jazz genres. To help us get a grasp of the contribution that Jeanette Records gave to music history is the former president of the Star Jeanette Foundation, Bob Jacobson. Now, I should apologize that as we conducted this interview in the quietest corner of a hotel in Indianapolis that we could find, you will still hear on occasion people, some of them probably lit up on hooch in the background. It also didn't help that my grandson was nearby playing with his matchbox cars on the floor. How did you end up in the jazz world, or at least have an interest in that? Moved to uh, Richmond, Indiana in 1986, and uh, didn't know a whole lot about uh, Richmond or Wayne County, and uh, I was supervising a um, vocational rehabilitation office, moved here from Valparaiso, Mm -hmm. and uh, then I I joined, uh, because I was from out of town, joined the Kiwanis Club of Richmond. And uh, one of the members uh, introduced me to somebody he had gone to high s- gone to school with years ago who uh, had a radio program at Miami University. His name was Sam Meyer. And he, he used to play the old stuff on Saturday at the WMUB. And uh, so he played music from the 20s through the 50s. And that was his afternoon slot. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went to talk to him, listen to him play some music, because he was going to be a speaker uh, the next month at our club. So that's how I got introduced. And Sam was involved with the Stargenet Foundation, mm-hmm. and uh, that's how I heard about it, and uh, got invited to attend a meeting and, and uh, learned about that. So there, in Richmond, there have been some murals of old musicians, mm-hmm. like um, Bix Beiderbeck. Um, Holy Carmichael, uh, and a few other, and a few other murals that have been added uh, in town, and uh, so that was my beginning. And uh, um, once I uh, retired, in fact, a little before I retired, I I got on the board at, at Starchinet, and then been, been a volunteer and active uh, ever since. Okay. So for folks who have zero idea, let's give a history of... Now, you say Jeanette, is that how you pronounce it? Or yeah, soft G. Just soft G, Jeanette, okay. Because I've heard it both ways, but... There's a, there's a big newspaper company called Gannett. Uh, and, in fact, they own the paper in Richmond. Uh, and that's very confusing even for the locals. Right. So, um, and that's G-A-N-N-E-T-T. Uh, Jeanette is a... They were an Italian family. And uh, they used to have a vowel on the end of their name uh, around Civil War time, okay. I mean, a long time ago, and that was dropped. Was that Janetta then, or Janetta? Yeah, but uh, probably Janetti. Uh, oh, Janetti, of course. Janetti, yes. yeah. 
you know, they uh, they were in Richmond uh, starting in 1893. They moved in, and Henry Jeanette uh, invested in the Star Piano Company. Mm-hmm. And the Star Piano Company had been around since 1872, you know, 20 years anyway, and they're making good pianos. Mm-hmm. And uh, the Jeanettes and the, and the family that he belonged to were retailers, and they decided to get into the production and and retail together. So they made a lot of money. Okay. That was back in the day when, you know, that was before recordings, really. So if you wanted music, you had to make it on your own. Yeah. Um, sheet music is what, when yeah. you went and buy a song, you bought some sheet music, uh-huh. put it on the piano, or you had other instruments that would play. But basically, piano music. Um, in 1906, uh, they started, Star started making player pianos with the rolls and so on. Yeah. So when did they decide to start recording? Now, obviously back then it was a kind of rudimentary, but it, was, it must have been very expensive to have the equipment to record people. Um, so to talk about how, I guess it was Star at that time, how they had gotten into recording. Yes. Um, uh, Edison invented the, the, the stuff, uh-huh. and there were three large recording, uh, Victor Talking Company, Columbia, and Edison. Those were the three big. Uh, co- and they were mostly doing their stuff in New York City. And uh, there was no jazz recorded, no blues recorded before 1920, 1921. Mm-hmm. Um, now, the very first original Dixieland jazz band, right. ODJB, yeah. that was 1917. So that was in New York. Now, these were New Orleans guys that had spent some time in Chicago, and they went to New York, and somebody gave them an opportunity to record. And, and they weren't... Um, those weren't masterpiece kind of recordings, yeah. but they were pretty good, and a lot of people got excited about it. So, um, so that's really when it started. And Jeanette started a, a recording studio in 1916 in New York City also. And they're trying to record Broadway people and opera people and that kind of stuff. So that's how they got their, you know, dipped their toe in it, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, phonographs are a big competition to pianos. So if you're in the home entertainment business, um, you, might, you might need to do phonographs because those, those, those cost like one-third or one-quarter the cost of a piano. The, the thing with Jeanette is that their location was important. See, we're in the Midwest, and there weren't many studios. And, in fact, there's like zero studios that, that is recording black artists. Mm-hmm. Um, now, there were some country uh, uh, recordings in New York, uh, but what Jeanette did is they looked for niches in the market, people who could afford records and photographs but weren't being catered to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you got what they called hillbilly music at the time. Mm-hmm. It was a precursor to country. And you also had blues. And then you had gospel. So there were gospel singers coming down from Chicago to record at Jeanette. Mm-hmm. And there were blues. Uh, folk, those folks were around, um, you know, guitar players, blues players. And they recorded at Jeanette. Um, the jazz, the big time for Je- Jeanette and jazz was between 22 and 25, 26, right there. And um, recording every year got just a little bit better. The technology got a little bit better. And uh, in 27, things started going electric. 
away from the acoustic recording and had electric recording. For folks listening, basically the, the acoustic didn't have a whole lot of bass end and electric had a lot. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And also uh, with that, drums. You don't hear many drums in those early 22, 23 records. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they had the uh, drummer on sticks, mm -hmm. on a block, mm -hmm. you know, just keeping time. Yeah. But it couldn't be deep stuff. Right. Do we know what the first jazz recording was that Jeanette made? Well, in, uh, in Richmond, it was a New Orleans Rhythm King came in in 22, 1922. Mm -hmm. And they were really good. You know, the, the front line were um, New Orleans boys, and the back line was some Illinois and Chicago people, about seven or eight musicians. Um, Tin Roof Blues was one of their big, big songs. It seems like I've recorded lots of collectors talking about different things, and whenever Jeanette does come up, inevitably, uh, they bring up a couple things. One, that King Oliver recorded with Jeanette, and that was significant because he had a uh, not a well-known horn player at the time, a guy by the name of Louis Armstrong, uh, and that would be significant because, uh, if I'm right, that's the, some of the first recordings that Louis Armstrong was ever on. Is that right? It, it was the first. It was the and, first. And the first solo that he did was that called Chimes Blues uh -huh. in Richmond. Yeah. yeah, it's, you know, it's like discovering, you know, Babe Ruth's first home run or, mm -hmm. you know, Satchel Page's, you know, first strikeout. Yeah. This is this is the greatest jazz performer of that century. It had to start somewhere. Mm -hmm. And uh, they came to uh, Jeanette Studios twice in 23. Now, it's also significant in that that group all, all New Orleans musicians, except for the piano player, Lil Hardin, who eventually became Mrs. Armstrong, she was from, I believe, Memphis. And she could read music. Some of these other guys couldn't read yeah. music. thing that always comes up with Jeanette is this oddity that they would record about anybody you know if you paid them they would record you and and so maybe this is how this came about but they always tell these stories about how maybe in the same day they would record you know some black musicians but they would also record the Ku, the Ku Klux Klan uh, that had made some I assume some like speeches or, or some kind of audio recordings uh, do we know much about that like uh, why the clan came to Jeanette to do some recordings, and did that cause any strife? Because, you know, they may be coming in and out the door. Uh. Uh, Jeanette did uh, personal recordings mm -hmm. for individuals and groups, and these recordings did not appear in the book or the manual where you could order them. Right. Um, they were done on a personal basis. They were done on a cash basis. Um, Indi Indiana was a stronghold for the Klan, as you probably know. And, and these guys came out of Indianapolis, and then they had a store on Virginia Avenue that they could sell 
merchandise, including records like um, the Fiery Cross or whatever they read. Oh, you're talking about the clan, or they had their own store. Yes, uh-huh. wow. yeah, and literature and yeah. papers and things like that up until about 1925, and then they crashed and burned. And, right, yeah, know, there, was, there, there was a big expose about all of their inner workings and scandals, yeah. And a number of politicians came down with them. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you know, I mean, obviously, in, in the end, I mean, of course, the whole country had you know, a racist problem, uh, but do you know if there was ever any problems, like when these black mans would come to Richmond to record, you know, did they have trouble you know, finding a place to eat or finding a place to stay, or was it a little bit different maybe than the rest of the country? Uh, yes and yes. Okay. It was a, l- a little bit different because... Uh, Richmond was a Quaker stronghold. We've always had black um, residents in Richmond, um, but it's also a very big time of segregation. Mm -hmm. So um, hotel um, stays didn't happen, but there were homes that people could stay in. Um, There was a sizable black audience community on the north side of, of Richmond. Of course, Quakers too were famous for during the abolitionist days. They were they were actually some of the first, probably, to actually take a stand against slavery and work against it. Strong in the Underground Railroad, and just north of Richmond is uh, the Levi Coffin House, and he was considered the president of Underground Railroad. Um, so, people coming up through Cincinnati or Louisville areas, going north, um, a lot of them were funneled through Wayne County and Fountain City and. And uh, Levi Coffin's written his memoirs, and he claimed to have 2,000 folks that, that he helped transport north. He actually left Fountain City and moved back to Cincinnati area to open up a free, free labor store. Yeah. It wasn't real good business, but they claimed not to use cotton picked by slaves and so on. Oh, yeah. Very good. So. Again, going back to Jeanette, uh, the other third thing that comes up is the fact that you know, Big Spiderbeck was recorded there, and of course that's significant amongst jazz fans. So talk about Bix's, uh, how he ended up at Jeanette, and you know, what capacity. Okay. Um, well, first of all, Armstrong and Bix were pretty good friends, believe it or not. Armstrong had played on the river, the Mississippi River, and between Bix's sophomore and junior year, he went down to the riverboat in Davenport and actually met Louis Armstrong. And that's in Armstrong's memoirs. Mm. And he said, well, this cute little boy came in and he was just so fascinated with the music. And these boats had um, calliopes. Now, Bix was trained as a pianist first. His mother was a pianist. And uh, he was became a jazz fanatic and uh, didn't finish high school in Davenport. They sent him to... Uh, Lake Forest, north of Chicago, to an academy, and he didn't last a year. <laughs> Taking the train down to Chicago because Louis Armstrong and King Oliver were down there, and so were the New Orleans Rhythm Kings. And that was a strong gravity for these people who were fanatics about this music. And Bix is learning how to play the cornet, and uh, was a quick study, and uh, learned by ear playing and um, uh, so in in music 
in, in my limited capacity to understand it. As far as trumpets and cornets go, Armstrong was loud, strong, a type of hot music. And there's another um, wing of, of jazz that's called softer music or... Subtle? Yeah, subtle's <laughs> a word. Uh, Miles Davis played that yeah. way. Not the big loud stuff, but the softer yeah. um, lyrical kinds of stuff. And that's what Beiderbeck um, did. so good at it that he went you know from bands to bands and and in a very short time he was with Paul Whiteman and uh, there was a time and, and Lewis writes about this when um, Whiteman's in Chicago and Bix is with him and Lewis went to see him see the Whiteman band mm -hmm. and uh, they talked again and he invited him to the Sunset Cafe on the south side, invited Bix down. So the next day, when Whiteman was done, Bix went down to the south side, waited till Armstrong and Oliver were done, and they jammed together. Oh, and this is a time when, um, in front of audiences, you didn't have white and black musicians on the on the stage together. Now it happened a few years later. Yeah. But um, you know, it was it rare it, if it ever happened at all yeah, back then. Yeah. Yeah. There were black bands and there were white bands. Yeah. Now, now Oliver and Armstrong, they they played on the south side of Chicago, but most of most of the week it was a black audience. Mm -hmm. At least one night a week it was a white audience. Mm -hmm. You see. Yeah. And and like in New York at the Cotton Club, where. Um, Duke Ellington was playing, and he also recorded for Jeanette. Mm -hmm. um, those were white audiences, mm -hmm. you know, six days a week. Yeah, blacks weren't allowed to attend. That's that's yeah. right. That was the segregation. Yeah. So the musicians yeah. couldn't play together on stage, and um, you know, at least not for the paid public. Right, right. But these guys really, really admired each other. And one thing Armstrong said is that Bix took the music so seriously. He, that's what one of the things he really liked about him. Yeah. And of course, Bix had a short life. Right. He drank himself to death, at, in essence, right? Right, right, at the age of 28. Yeah. 28. So talk about Bix at Jeanette. Like, what are some of the, the, the notable recordings? One of the first ones was something that Hoagy Carmichael wrote, Davenport Blues. The Wolverines and Bix spent about a semester in Bloomington, Indiana, playing for college groups. And that's where they really got to know each other. Hoagy Carmichael wrote a song that was recorded by Beiderbeck and, and, and the Wolverines called Riverboat Shuffle. And uh, Beiderbeck actually put that title on that because it reminded him of back home on the Mississippi. Oh, so he... And then the, the song Davenport Blues was credited to Beiderbeck because he did write that uh -huh. and that was the jazz song that has his name as the author and that was recorded at Jeanette uh, in 25 I believe. So Carmichael had the melody and he gave it to Beiderbeck and he... Yes. Oh. Yeah, in Bloomington and then the Wolverines 
drove to Richmond and recorded three or four songs, and that was one of them. Wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and, and of course that made uh, Carmichael just great. You know, he yeah. was he was off the off the earth that these guys had recorded his songs. Yeah, and you know it just encouraged them to keep writing. just talking about him, another significant character is Hoagy Carmichael. Again, to the uninitiated, who is Hoagy Carmichael and why is he so important and so unique? He, he's unique. He was a, a, a pretty good piano player uh-huh. and um, a friend of Vic Spiderbeck. He was a student at Indiana University. He, um, his mother was a piano player and, and uh, Hoagy put groups together to play for sororities and fraternities and uh, Bix included encouraged him to write you know and um, he got his um, he got his law degree from Indiana University in about uh, 1926 and decided to try to make a career out of it and he went down to Florida and was was getting you know trying to get ready to pass the bar down there and he was doing some studying and this music came in through the window and it was a song that Hoagie had recorded had written washboard blues and he heard that I think it was Red Nichols that had recorded that kind of struggling and he closed his books and he went back home to Indiana and then a year later he uh, wrote and recorded Stardust and that was recorded in Richmond, Indiana. Oh, wow. You know, it's one of the biggest, most recorded songs of all time. Right. Uh, through the 30s, there was multiple recordings by a lot of big musicians. Armstrong was playing that song on stage just about every night. And uh, I think it's been recorded by more than 1,500 different people. He's not really known as much as a recording artist, you know, but I actually like his voice and uh, I like his performances. He, of course, as you mentioned, he's more known as a uh, songwriter. And he was the songwriter, yeah. Uh, and then he got into movies, too. Yes, That's yeah. That's another part. There's some great uh, scenes between, like, him and Lauren Bacall. Yes. so lonely was I gay Was I gay Till today Till today now she's gone and we're through, baby, oh, am I blue? Am I blue? 
Did he want to be a recording artist initially, do you think? Uh, yes. Yeah, he did. Loved the music. Grew up playing, you know, ragtime and other things like that. And uh, uh, in 29, he went to Tin Pan Alley. He moved to New York in the summer of 29, and then the crash came. Mm-hmm. Well, he stuck it out. You know, he had some money because of, of uh, Stardust and others. But they put the, the um, I think it was Mills Music that put words to that song. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mitchell Parrish was the writer for the words. And so now, you know, um, you can listen to it and understand what the, what it's about. Right. So that that's the kind of thing. And then he was there for a, a number of years, and then Hollywood called. Mm-hmm. And, of course, you got talkies that started in 27. And so people who could create music for movies mm-hmm. were in high demand. And that's where he went and made more money. I need someone to love me Need somebody to carry me home to San Francisco and bury my body there. From a like a sonic point of view, do you feel like the the studio, the recording studio at Jeanette was special? Because you hear people arguing about what what was the best studio at the time, and I had a guy you probably knew. He's passed away now. Phil Piscopia. Um, yes, I met him. Yeah, uh, he talked about going to the Jeanette Studios and trying to, you know, take in the molecules. Do you feel like that there was something special about the building, or what do you think? It was the era. It mm. was it was pretty primitive mm. building. You know, a mohawk rug was on one wall. Um, they had to keep it warm because the the technology and the wax needed to be warm when they're recording. Um, you know, it's factories can be loud. There's trains going by outside, so it's pretty primitive. Um, but you know, it's a magical time. You know, magical place, and uh, people wanted to come by and collect. After years, decades later, you know, pick up a brick sure. from that area. Yeah, maybe there's some music still hung in, in that brick. <laughs> Vibrations. Yeah. yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, people who studied and followed that, they're um, they want to get back to the beginning, to the original. So, so I may have mentioned that um, there would be um, educators who have done this uh, for years, and they just had never been to Richmond, Indiana. And they said, well, I've been telling my kids about this for years. I need to get here myself. I mean, I volunteered at the office down there, and you know, the musicians that came to town to perform the old music, always wanted to see what was down there and what it was like. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they really enjoyed it. And there would be musicians that would travel across country. They want to stop and, and, you know, silently come in and then leave. Mm -hmm. You know, I hear stories like that, too. Is there somebody who recorded at Jeanette that maybe gets overlooked and you like to champion? Well, we have about 30 people in the Walk of Fame, uh-huh. some pretty famous people, and some of them may have only recorded there one day, uh-huh. you know, that kind of thing. But Mary Lou Williams is not in our Walk of Fame. There are some wonderful musicians out of the Pittsburgh area that came to Jeanette. Mm-hmm. 
We had uh, Lombardo from Canada came to Jeanette to record and then he set up house in Chicago for a while mm -hmm. before he went to New York. Welk recorded there. Really? Uh, yeah, yeah. Did he bring his accordion and his bubbles? Yeah, he had the accordion. Uh. I don't know about the bubbles, <laughs> but the accordion. Yeah, Spiked Beer was one of his fast songs that wow. he recorded on Jeanette. Doc Roberts, fiddling Doc Roberts. There's Kentucky yeah. fiddlers, there was um, Tennessee um, musicians that came, came to town. Um, so, uh, after 27, say from 27 to 34, and that's, that's when it ended in 34, yeah. there was a lot of blues uh -huh. and country uh -huh. that was being recorded. A lot of the jazz musicians were in New York. Uh -huh. You know, Armstrong eventually got to New York, and of course, Hoagie, I told you, got to New York, and they travel around a lot. And, and uh, Jeanette did not keep up with the technology to, to, to do really good recordings of, of uh, larger jazz groups. Is that was the end of them, do you think? It was getting to, getting to the end. Now, um, a couple of things that happened is that radio came into play in the mid-20s, mid and then there was national radio programs, and, uh, you know, Chicago, Chicago had the uh, WLS station, and they had a national barn dance. Mm -hmm. Some of those folks recorded at in Richmond, mm -hmm. you know, uh, back in the 29, 30, 31, those kind of, about that period of time. And, and these songs were selling. And Jeanette also sold um, a lot of catalog, uh, Sears and Roebucks, they had a big contract with Jeanette. Mm -hmm. And so some of these country um, artists were really selling through, through catalogs with uh, Sears. I left my baby down in the back door crying. Begging and pleading, don't you leave this time. Jeanette also, in addition to jazz and the Klan, they also recorded blues music. Can you talk about some of the more significant recording artists that ended up through there? Uh, the great Lonnie Johnson came in and recorded. He was one of the fantastic blues and jazz guitarists. Recorded later with Armstrong and Ellington. Scrapper Blackwell was an Indianapolis blues guy. And uh, he recorded in the 30s at, at Jeanette. You know, these guys predate Robert Johnson. Big Bill Brunzi, him, you know, he was out of Chicago. Well, born in Arkansas, but out of Chicago. He's in our, our walk of fame. Why don't you tell me, loving mama, how you want your rolling? Why don't you tell me, loving mama, how you want your rolling? 
But I'll give you satisfaction now if it's all in. Studs Turkle wrote a nice book about Big Bill uh, Brunsey and interviewed him kind of like you're interviewing me. Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty cool, yeah. <laughs> so those are, those, are, those are the ones. Now, um, you may have seen the movie about uh, Ma Rady, Black Bottom. Well, she did not record at Jeanette. She uh -huh. recorded at Paramount, but uh -huh. that was in the 20s. Now, for almost two years, her piano player was named Thomas A. Dorsey. Uh -huh. Thomas, not to be confused with this other Tommy Dorsey. Right. This is a, a black piano player uh -huh. who, who recorded with Ma Rainey. Well, Thomas A. Dorsey, eventually he gave up jazz and blues and became, uh, was considered the father of gospel music. He recorded at Richmond. Mm -hmm. Off your shoes when you come in the door. What's that I smell? Oh, it ain't nothing, Mama. What's that I smell? I told you it ain't nothing. Smell kind of funny. Tell me what's that I smell. And then Sidney Bechet recorded, a new, another New Orleans guy. Jelly Roll Morton, quite significant. Uh, his first solos were done at Jeanette. And, and these guys were working in Chicago and came down to record. During this whole time, the company that owned Jeanette wasn't just depending on recordings. I mean, they had their fingers in other pies, so to speak. Did it, the recording ever interfere with their other businesses, or were they able to maintain everything? Um, in the 20s, uh, once radio got bigger and bigger, um, record sales went down, uh, piano sales went down by 50%. You know, and this is before the crash of '29, and that was really kind of the spike that went to the heart of a lot of recording. So, um, very little recording uh, happened nationally um, between, say, '30 30 and '35. Somewhere, people just weren't buying the records, and they certainly weren't buying the full price records. So there were discounts and cheaper material. So a record that used to go for a dollar is now three for a dollar, that kind of thing. Um, so uh, as a corporation, they, uh, they were really large and they had been all in in the family entertainment business with pianos, player pianos, and then phonographs and of course records. But the Jeanette division was uh, considered secondary to the piano business. Now during the 30s, they started making refrigeration units because they had the employees, they had the square space, but they didn't have to make so many pianos, so they diversified, and which was a, which was a good thing in the long run because um, when when Star divided its assets, the West Coast got the, the, the large part of the refrigeration business. And you know, being a being a desert area and out west and, and growing fast, um, the refrigeration unit or refrigeration supply distribution part of the company did very well. And um, the demise of 
Star Piano was 1952. And they, they stopped making refrigerators, they stopped making um, pianos, and, and they, they were just done mm-hmm. and divided the assets up. So there was something going on in California, but not, not locally. Is the Star Pianos, are they collectible now? Or? Yeah, yeah, there's, there's some good ones around. Uh, I dare say that the Jeanette records are more collectible. Oh, sure. <laughs> depending on who's who uh, who's recorded on them. But what is the holy grail of, of Jeanette records? Like you know, be the Armstrong stuff yeah, with King Oliver. Yeah, 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 that'd be number one. Right. Yeah. Um, how many Dix is right there. How many do you own? None. <laughs> <laughs> I, I go for the uh, remake of the CDs yeah. kind of stuff. So I, I listen to the music. And you can go on the internet and hear all that stuff. Yeah. So the building that where all this, all these recordings happened, obviously it got either used, repurposed for something else, and then got abandoned, right? So give us a quick history of that, and and as it, how does it stand today? Well, where the factory was, it's about thirty-five acres along the river. Uh, it's now City Park, and uh, one building remains. It's been. Uh, put a new roof on it, and it's used as a um, a venue to rent for res- uh, parties, um, weddings, et weddings, yeah, yeah etc. And you rent it from the city. Yeah. There's a new parking lot there, so we've got, and then there's the Walk of Fame. Mm-hmm. So um, that's that's what happened. And it, and back in um, well, in the late seventies. That whole factory was sold for like $85,000 and then pretty much demolished. Eventually went into control of the, the property, went to the city, and some grants were made to help um, make it attractive and safe for folks. So is there anything left of the actual recording studio? Not the recording studio. Mm-hmm. You mentioned Phil. Now, he took yeah. a picture when he was down there in yeah. like 1958. Yeah. And it's in one of the books about Jeanette Records. Uh-huh. And in fact, Phil told me that you can see by my Plymouth, the side of my car is in that uh-huh. picture that I took of the recording studio. Uh-huh. So you can see the, the railroad track, the spur. See, to get down into the gorge, there's a switchback uh-huh. that they went right through the middle of the factory where they could offload. Lumber and onload um, phonographs and pianos and stuff like that. You you mentioned this really already, but is it just like you have uh, blues musicians that make pilgrimages to, to Mississippi, you know, try to find the crossroads of uh, Robert Johnson or whoever? Obviously, you have people coming to Richmond to soak it up or just to make a pilgrimage. In your job, like talking with these folks much? And I do. I've taken a, a few. Uh, current musicians down there. I took uh, Warren Vichet down there mm-hmm. and uh, showed him where the medallion of Armstrong was and he got out of the car and he looks down and he goes, hiya pops. <laughs> yeah. His pops was one of the nicknames right. for, for that. Yeah. Some of the fat babies have been here. How they love each other, yeah. 
Dr. Uh, DePogne passed away. You know, we got some black and white photos when he was there as a younger man visiting there, probably in the early 80s. Having your job, I mean, obviously there's a lot of local people that may come in or you may run into. Do you ever pick up a new story that you never heard before or never found in a book before? Um, I would give talks around town and, and people would say, well, my grandmother worked there down uh, there, you know, at the record place. Or, um, a lot of people worked there. Um, you know, they had, in the day, they had 700 employees down there. And then once they finished up, you know, DECA was printing records down there for about 20 years. And then Mercury came in um, through the, most of the 60s. They were printing records. So there was, uh, people would say, well, I worked in Star, and they might mean Star Valley. Mm -hmm. But uh, like my dentist just five years ago, he had two uncles that worked down making pianos. They were immigrants, mm -hmm. and um, each of them worked 50 years down there. It was considered at one point, you know, the old old man's place, old man's home, mm. because they didn't lay people off and people worked a long time. Yeah. You know, this was before much good retirement and, you know, no Social Security. So I'm going back a ways, but yeah. um, most of them were uh, craftsmen who enjoyed what they were doing. Yeah. And uh, it was a very family-oriented uh, business. Right. Um, one, one story, uh, Harry uh, Jeanette, who who was president for about 30 years, this is the son of Henry, um, he, uh, he had, uh, well, this worker had worked, his mother had been a cook, uh, I'm talking about a black individual, mm -hmm. and he, uh, he had gone to Earlham College, and um, he, uh, he was, this is when World War II was coming on, and Harry Jeanette wrote a very good complimentary letter to the to the Tuskegee Institute, oh, yeah. and he became a Tuskegee Airman. Oh wow! Yeah, yeah. and he had worked for the Jeanette family. He had a little college in his background. Oh. Yeah, um, he never uh, went flew in Germany. He didn't finish the program, but oh. he had started it. And then then there were some family issues back home. Mm -hmm. So, but I knew that guy. His name was Harry Level. Uh, Jeanette was a, a special time special uh, place, Richmond's a special place, and uh, it's good, uh, good American history. When all this is happening, people aren't thinking like, man, this is a great place, or this is going to be historical. Do you ever like look around yourself today, and you wonder, like, am I driving past something that's going to be super significant later, or uh, especially when it comes to recordings, or anything, uh, for that matter? In particular, people. Uh, and, and we don't realize, you know, life is short how significant the people that we see here, um, maybe at a, at a music festival or you see on the stage, uh, what the next five or ten years holds for these people. Um, yeah, I don't think we cherish uh, our time together as much as we ought to because, um, as I said, life is short and uh, you wish you could bring some of those things back, you know. So if you got an opportunity to go hear somebody, listen, uh, go do it, because uh, there may not be another time. There was a time when 
uh, Ray Charles came to Richmond to, it was a money-making thing for some foundation or whatever, and I blew it off. I did not go to that. And I, you know, I'm always thinking, you know, a young guy, oh, there'll be another time. There is no second time. There is no second time. You better do it now because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You know, so um, enjoy, uh, grab it, and smell the roses, and enjoy it. Pet the cat. Yeah, pet the cat. Enjoy it, and be kind to people. If people want to reach out to you or to the foundation, how do they go about doing that? Yeah. Well, they, they can go uh, on the internet and, and check out uh, StarGenetteFoundation.com. We have an office, um, StarGenet office at 33 South 7th Street in Richmond. And we, we have some CDs for sale and some books for sale and T-shirts and things like that. like to hear more interviews along these lines check out in the corner back by the woodpile episode 100 where we chatted with the aforementioned phil pospakaya sorry about my mispronunciation who talks about jazz records breweries jeanette records saint valentine's day massacre bix biderback fat babies and so much more then there's episode 282 where charlie young talks about the life of his uncle barney young who published music and managed such performers as machito harry blackstone Fat Swaller, Artie Shaw, Mez Mesro, and Uname Carlisle. In the Corner Back by the Woodpile is produced by A Closet, A Pocket, and A Suitcase. You can listen to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbeam.com. If you'd like to send us some hate mail, you can email us at spuncounterguy at hotmail.com. See ya, and I wouldn't want to be ya. (laughs) 